Hello again, everybody. Welcome back to High Story. I am your host, Matt, alongside my forever co-host over there. Hi, guys. Thank you to everyone who tuned in last week for the twisted, senseless craziness that happened in Montgomery, Texas about 20 years ago. Hope everyone who got a chance to listen enjoyed it, and if you haven't yet, go back and give that a listen. It's insane. And I hope everyone who has a chance to listen today is ready for some more weird true crime stuff that also happens to be sort of historical. Well, kinda. The first half of the story is a horrible, vicious murder, and the other half involves skin wallets and death masks. Getting weird today. As always, please be sure to do the free stuff on whichever platform you're listening on. Five stars, rate, review, whatever thing you listen on, if it lets you do it do it if you would and other than that i don't really have any updates on anything yet maybe have an update for y'all next week but nothing serious no big deal still coming back once a week and again thanks for listening we really do appreciate that anybody would take the time out of their day to listen to us it really does mean a lot to us so we want to talk about some spooky shit today so let's get on with it shall we get in the time machine We gotta go back a little bit. So we're gonna spend quite a bit of time in the 19th century today. And I was unaware of just how much spooky, weird stuff was going on in the 1800s. It seemed like everywhere and everything was or is still haunted. There was the Bell Witch wreaking havoc all over northern Tennessee in 1820s, or at least on one farm. I'd heard of the Bell Witch before, but I haven't really done much more of my own deeper reading into it, but apparently Andrew Jackson caught wind of whatever this thing was and went to the farm to, quote, put an end to it. Yes, that Andrew Jackson. The fearless war hero was rather unsuccessful at subduing the creature. Are you okay over there? And he was rather unsuccessful at subduing the creature, and supposedly it even threw dishes at him and the other people on the farm. In the morning, Jackson said, I'd rather fight the British, and took off. I don't know what that voice was. He said, I'll see you guys later, I'm gonna go be president, and then so much other bad shit. Well, wait a minute, maybe that was what was wrong with him. Maybe before the witch encounter, he was actually nice and reasonable, and willing to share land with other people, and then he got blasted in the face by a poltergeist and it scrambled his brains. Maybe... No, I don't know, but it is fun for me to think about a giant dinner plate flying through the air and smashing Jackson square in the forehead. Meanwhile, Madame Delphine Lalaurie had been horribly torturing slaves on her house on Royal Street in between 1831 and 1834. But I kind of want to get out of the South. It's sticky down here, and that's way too long of a story to get sidetracked on today, so... Let's instead go to New Jersey in 1833 and get acquainted with a man named Antoine Leblanc, recently immigrated from France. They have French fries. Oh, you know what? I'm stupid, though. It's springtime in this story. It may or may not be sticky here, too. I don't know. I've never been to New Jersey in the springtime. Or ever before. I want to go to more places. I've only been to Oklahoma and Texas, and both places, most of it sucks. I want to go see some cool old historic shit. Like, I mean, I've walked by the Alamo in San Antonio, but there was a field trip that day, so there was like 200 fourth graders walking around bumping into each other because they're not coordinated because they're fourth graders. But So I don't think that really counts. But anyway, back to the story. Antoine LeBlanc 
like many Europeans before and after have done, came to America in search of wealth and opportunity. In France, Leblanc lived in the Moselle region, which is northeastern France near Germany, and settled into the Moselle Valley, named for a river that runs through it. He wanted to marry a woman he was in love with named Marie, to marry Marie, Meli, Marie, but her parents, or parents en français, apparently that word is a cognate, said he was too poor and of too low a social class to marry Marie. Uh, you are, uh, how you say, too poor and unfascinating to marry my daughter, eh? Now go away while I smoke. You know what that reminds me? The only French woman I've ever met, I think her name was actually Marie too. It may have been short for something else, I don't remember what, but we all just called her Marie. She was a really nice lady. Taught me a little bit of French, and I've forgotten most of it, but I'm pretty sure that accent is spot on. And instead of making a living in France, probably would have been somewhat difficult anyway with the Paris uprising going on the year before, LeBlanc buys a ticket to the New World and sets sail by way of Germany. I like it when they say by way of. That's fun. Don't judge. He arrives in New York on April 26th of 1833, and two or three days later, he's hired by the Sayer family to work on their farm. Wow, that's pretty quick. The Sayers, a prominent and well-to-do family, had a fairly good-sized farm, and an African-American house servant named Phoebe, who may or may have not been a slave. I'm unclear on as to her status in the house. And LeBlanc, I'm kind of thinking he might have come from a decent family in France, I've seen a couple things here and there that mention he was some sort of nobility or maybe like upper middle class. And he loved cigars too, which seems like the sort of thing you'd only get a chance to know you enjoy if you aren't doing backbreaking manual field work. So he's probably not used to that. So his occupation upon arriving at the Sayre farm was probably pretty jarring when he actually started to work. See, there had been a bit of a miscommunication on the job application. Oh, really? LeBlanc thought he'd be in a supervisory type of role, but instead, he'd be taking the place of a runaway slave and was expected to work the fields and do other manual labor. I'm guessing the Sayers may not have been particularly kind to him since the running away, and now they've got a random French guy to tend the fields to. A Frenchman whom, by the way, doesn't speak any English, and the Sayers... No, not any French either which probably explains the bit of the miscommunication earlier. <laughs> I speak more French than a wealthy old historic family did. So right away, there's a problem. A language barrier that's impossible to get through, and an employee? Question mark? That is very likely unfit to perform the job well. And it's literally a shit job plowing fields and, like, scraping up manure and shit. Did I, did I mention the cigars? He constantly smelled like acrid cigar smoke, and he's... Dunk the whole time, too, like body odor. He very poor personal hygiene habits. You know, to be fair, though, I don't know how readily available a bath or shower was for a field hand in those days, so it could be that he just wasn't able to get rid of his odor. But still, oniony farm sweat and cigar smoke would be pretty off-putting to anybody. Another big problem, probably caused by the first problem, is that LeBlanc wasn't getting paid. He was taking the place of a runaway slave remember, and I don't recall many slaves having earned a wage of any kind. So tensions begin to rise pretty quickly, and LeBlanc formulates a plan to get back at the Sayers for the humiliating treatment of such a high-standing individual. And 
I don't feel like doing this for just room and board. I need to get make some actual money. It's probably what he's thinking. It didn't take long for old Antoine to grow tired of the grueling daily chores for no money. Two weeks into his vacation to the New World, he's had about enough of the Sayers and their maid bossing him around to literally clean up pig shit. And on May 11th, 1833, LeBlanc goes to the local tavern down the street from the Sayer house, a very much needed break from chopping wood and cleaning up pig styes all day. I'm kind of just assuming the house is within a reasonable walking distance to the tavern, the population at the time is only about 2,500 people or so, and I can't imagine it's that far away. Regardless, he goes to the tavern and gets wrecked on hard cider. If you can hear that, my neighbor just got in the shower. Where are we? So he goes to the tavern and gets wrecked on hard cider. He had to work up the courage to be able to pull off his plan successfully, which obviously he doesn't, otherwise I wouldn't be talking about this right now. But here's what he does after getting tanked on high-octane apple juice at the bar. He'd hatched a plan to lure Samuel Sayer to the barn, saying there was some kind of distress among the horses. So he gets home. He sneaks upstairs to find Samuel in the washroom shaving. Please, there is something wrong with the horses. Please, you must follow me. Oh, you know what? If, if you've seen the boys, don't spoil season three for me. I can't afford Prime yet, just use Frenchie's voice. It's probably way better than mine anyway. And this next part is probably something he would do too, so, you know, except he'd get away with it. LeBlanc lures the elder Sayer to the barn to investigate the horses. As Samuel Sayer is checking them out, you know, looking them over, making sure the horses are okay, LeBlanc sneaks up from behind him with either a shovel or an axe. Could be either one. I think maybe an axe makes more sense and then bashes him in the head with it, knocking him, knocking him to the ground. This is kind of gross, so fair warning. As Mr. Sayer is on the ground, LeBlanc stands over him with the shovel or axe, and this, this is why maybe shovel, since he's standing over him, and smashes into him again, this time with enough force to get brain matter on his coat, which is pretty gross, of course. See, it could be an axe or a shovel there. I'm not sure. It'd have to be like a big axe, though. Then he goes back to the house and repeats the process with Mrs. Sayre, Sarah. Come with me. The horses are all spooked about something. Couldn't possibly know what's causing it. Same old story. Lures her out to the barn. She's checking him out. And then he hits her in the head with the same axe. And then also, for some reason, he kicked her in the head either after she died or to death. I'm not clear. It's written weird and everywhere I can find it, but I don't know why he did that. Maybe she was extra mean to him. I don't know. Just an extra little... <laughs> I don't know. He then buries the two bodies underneath a pile of manure. <laughs> he still had to shovel shit in order for his plan to work. I don't know why. This made me chuckle. He just can't get away from the pig shit. This is also a bad plan. Yeah, also that, if you're unhappy with where you're working, don't axe or shovel murder your employer. There's way easier ways of getting out of a job. And then just for good measure, LeBlanc goes back inside the house, sneaks into Phoebe's room, and either does the same thing to her as the Sayers with the axe shovel, or possibly a pitchfork to the chest. Oh my god, what the hell? Yeah. So now with everybody out of the way, 
LeBlanc is free to move about the cabin and steal all the Sayer's valuable stuff. He throws everything he can into a couple pillowcases he found. Coins, silverware, trinkets, heirlooms, knickknacks, doodads, thingamabobs, and... Ah, fuck it, why not a fresh pair of not-bloody-or-brainy clothes from Samuel's closet, then steals a horse and gallops away, never to be seen again. The perfect plan, nobody will suspect a thing. I'm a genius. <laughs> By the way, I misspelled genius twice and misspelled once while I wrote this out, so I'm definitely not an egnius. Except LeBlanc was super drunk on hard cider and didn't notice that the pillowcases had holes in them, so it was definitely not the perfect plan, and he will be seen again very soon. So as he's riding away down the street in the dark, leaving a trail of breadcrumbs for the entire town to find when the sun comes back up, there's just trinkets and heirlooms and spoons and all kinds of stuff all over the ground. Just every one of them, or at least one, I'm sure, has the Sayer family crest on them, so... Hey, what's that over there? Where'd that spoon in the road come from, huh? Gee, I don't know. Let's go to their house and ask them. See, Sayer's plan, not Sayer's plan, LeBlanc's plan was to steal all the valuables he could and sell them for a ticket back to Germany. If he'd only checked those pillowcases just a little bit better. Indeed. Why wouldn't you double-check? Yeah, why would you not take the extra time to check that? There's no one there to stop you. As you might imagine, the town zeroes in on the culprit pretty quickly after discovering a bloodbath at the farm. In fact, it was the very next day that Sheriff George Ludlow rounded up a posse to go a-hunting for this feller, where they tracked him down to the Mosquito Tavern over in Hackensack Meadow. And he had a bag of the Sayer stuff right next to him. Couldn't possibly be caught more red-handed. You know what? He probably still had blood on him. Literally red-handed. Why would you name a place Mosquito, anyway? I, I can't get that out of my head this whole time. The Mosquito Tavern. That's, that's weird. Yeah, that place sucks. He is, of course, arrested while there and taken back to Morristown for judgment. We're in Morristown, New Jersey, by the way. I don't think I mentioned that before now. My bad. This is in Morristown, New Jersey. Let me ask you something. Do you think the town is going to be reasonable about this whole thing? Yeah, yeah, I know, obviously, but come on, play along. All right. Now I think they're probably going to be pretty upset if there's a posse involved. Right, why else would you round one up? And if they're a wealthy family, they've probably got social connections, too. Correct again. They react pretty angrily, and it gets super weird from here on out. He's kept sitting in jail for a little while. He was arrested in May. The trial comes around in August. He's... Just sitting in jail, shouting, shouting at the jailers in French, probably stinking the place up, too, asking for a cigar every 20 minutes. That isn't French. And probably just, you know, being a general nuisance for three months. Eventually, he did confess. I guess they found another French guy who didn't stink to translate for them. During the trial, it says he was extended all the formalities of a fair court proceeding. Was it really? You know, partly because, you know, shit like that happened all the time back then even if the person was wrongfully accused, and LeBlanc for sure did it here, but they probably didn't let him mount much of a defense. But it also only took 20 minutes for the jury to deliberate, and he is found super guilty. Well, what happens if you're super guilty? The next day, Judge Gabriel Ford, great-grandfather of Henry Ford, says LeBlanc was to be, quote, hanged by the neck until dead and delivered to Dr. Isaac Canfield, a surgeon for dissection. 
He's actually not his grandfather. I'm just being silly. Yes, dissection. It's about to get creepy. Hold on, though. We're not finished with the punishment phase. On September 6th... Awesome! Not July this time. Finally. LeBlanc has marched up to the gallows in the town square so everybody can witness the hanging. Here's the weird thing, though. I mean, besides the entire rest of the story, the, the town has only about 2,400 or 2,500 people at this time, but everywhere I looked at this, it says there's like ten to 12,000 people in attendance for this. That's a shitload of people. That's about how many people were living in Pompeii when Mount Vesuvius erupted, and they wouldn't even be able all to see it. That crowd would be enormous. Hang on, we found some crowd stats. Yeah, check this out. These are kind of neat. There's 12,000 people here, and about 250 people will fill up a small church. 500 is like a good-sized theater, like an acting theater. 3,000 is about as big as like the biggest theaters can accommodate. Like the biggest theater that you can think of is probably about 3,000 people. 10,000 people is an entire stadium. Just imagine that. An entire soccer stadium's worth of people gathered together on a town square to watch an execution. Oh yeah, there's a clipping from, I guess it's an old newspaper called The Jerseyman. There's an old clipping about the crowd that said, quote, Many people brought their lunches, but all supplies went out too early and scores went hungry. <laughs> they ate too early and got hungry again before he was hanged. And it's not even a normal hanging either. They actually used a modernized, custom-made-for-this-execution form of the gallows, so it operates in friggin' reverse. It's two wooden beams with a crossbar at the top connecting them. And off to one side is a giant counterweight with a rope attached, and the rope is fed through some little eyelets at the top, and then that goes down to form a noose that goes around the person's neck. And then they calculate the height and the weight necessary, because there's math involved with getting it right, otherwise it'll... He falls too short, and he'll, like, smash into the ground and break his legs, or... I don't know if it... I, I don't know if it's operating in reverse. I guess the math would be backwards, too, but whatever. They calculate the height and weight necessary, and then as they cut the rope holding the weight, the weight drops, and it launches LeBlanc about eight feet up in the air. Oh and when God. I first read that, I didn't have the diagram I can see now to visualize this thing, so I'm picturing, like, an old trebuchet kind of thing. Is he literally just being catapulted into a snap neck? No, we're just dumb sometimes. Yeah, we are. He dangles there for two minutes until he dies, and then they cut him down 35 minutes later. They just let him hang there for a half hour and ship the body over to Dr. Canfield's office for dissection. Really? They did that a lot back then, actually. Yeah, they'd use them for research and stuff, but you know, a lot of times the bodies would come from grave robbers and other less-than-legal means. I found some neat stuff on grave robbers, too, but we'll do that later. And this is why I like reading old-timey stuff like this. It's fun to read how how they wrote stuff back then is always interesting. Like, no one calls anybody a murderous scoundrel anymore, like in those days. You're murderous scoundrel. And if you think we're messed up now, maybe taking our creativity a little bit too far, but... Check out what some of your great-great-great-great-great-great-grandparents did. After they cut LeBlanc down and shipped him off to wherever they shipped him, the first thing they did, Doctors Canfield and Joseph Henry, they hooked a battery up to his corpse. Why would they do that? For science, of course. See, there was a theory at the time that muscle function was caused by electrical impulses. Nailed it on that one, guys. 
But technology just wasn't there yet, so the only way to test this little theory was to hook up an outside source, such as a battery, and see if you can shock the body into reacting or moving or whatever. What the shit? Even stranger, it worked. Huh? Kinda. They got his eyes to roll back in his head a little bit, and then form just a little tiny smile, but not much else. Is that more impressive or just creepy? I don't know. Hold on. I think I can answer that one for you. Because after electroshock therapy, they cut his ears off. Why? Well, they were in the way. What could they possibly be in the way of? How about a plaster death mask? I mean, they're still not on your face. Yeah, but some other people also wanted them for a souvenir, so you ear. gotta do what you gotta do, I guess. I mean, I don't think you do. Wait a minute. You're gonna need something to carry those ears around in, aren't you? Oh, don't be naive. He was a grown man with lots and lots of skin. So they had it sent off to the Atno Tannery, where the workers there had to peel it all off and turn it into all kinds of stuff. Like what? Everyday stuff, which makes it so much creepier. Wallets, lampshades, books, purses, book jackets. Oh, damn, they literally turned this guy into the Necronomicon. Awesome. Can I leave yet? I'm getting weirded out. Nope, you're stuck with me. They would also just sell random strips of his flesh to passers-by on the street. He'll be back, don't worry. And every one of these little strips of flesh was signed by good old Sheriff Ludlow from earlier, verifying their authenticity. Was there really a huge market for counterfeit human skin? Really? And that's where the story should end, right? LeBlanc brutally murders three people because he didn't like his job. Now let's be honest, you don't axe murder three people unless there's something else going on. And then after he's hanged and stripped for parts and the entire town is just <whistles> whistling happy and you know it, pretending nothing ever happened while squirreling away actual strips of his flesh and illuminating their living rooms with an epidermis lampshade. That seems like a natural endpoint, right? Except it isn't. This story would just not let up over the years, even after they somehow lost the rest of his remains. People thought for a while that Dr. Canfield had reassembled the full skeleton and hid it away in his office somewhere, but even better was the truth. The remains had just been stashed away in a wooden box in a forgotten corner of whatever old building they stored them in, and then that was eventually torn down, and then in July of 1893, oh, there it is, while digging up the foundation for a new county courthouse, hot damn, they dug up a wooden box containing the old bones. We'll talk more about the death mask and some other stuff in a little bit, but I ended up going down a rabbit hole of 1800s paranormal stuff, and this seems like the least in the way place to put it, and it's sort of in the same vein, so it, and it seems like there's also a lot of seemingly unexplainable things going on at the White House during the Lincoln term. This won't take long, don't worry. Abe and his wife Mary Todd were both pretty superstitious, turns out. Mary Todd, having lost Willie Lincoln in 1862 after he died in the White House, probably of typhoid, Mary Todd began having visions of former residents and even a few presidents, including Thomas Jefferson and Andrew Jackson. Maybe the witch finally caught up to him and caved in his skull with a Dutch oven back in 1845. Probably not. But my favorite part of this rabbit hole was some of the names of some of the mediums, you know, people who claim they can talk to the dead. Mary Todd Lincoln held a seance with a trance medium by the name of Mrs. Cranston Laurie, 
which might be backwards, but that's how it was written, and the name Cranston as a first name made me laugh way too hard, so I had to include it. And then there's another medium who calls himself Lord Colchester. And I really want Lord Colchester and Mrs. Cranston to get married so her name can legally be Cranston Colchester. Which sounds exactly like one of Roger's made-up personas, doesn't it? Cranston Colchester, spiritual advisor and train conductor. Or maybe, as one of the fake specialist experts in Metalocalypse, he'd be introduced as the high priest and psychological death expert of morbidology and trains, Lord Cranston Colchester. But then his voice in that show would be like, Gentlemen! I'm not going to spare you. Moving on. All right, I really just wanted an excuse to tell you about Cranston Colchester, because that's an awesome name. And you know what? I primed your brains for the modern day with my references. Sort of. We're in 1995 now. Halloween night, to be specific. One of the older, wealthier residents of the town, Carl Scherzer, he died back in 1979 and was a bit of a historian. He collected all manner of odd 19th century knickknacks and doohickeys, and after his death, his son was placed in charge of sorting through all his stuff. In the process of liquidating the estate, I don't know why it took until 95 to do this. It couldn't have been that big or that much stuff. Maybe it was. Auctioneers and movers found a box in the basement that had Antoine LeBlanc's death mask in it. I'd lose my shit if I opened up a box and saw another face staring back at me. <laughs> no. If you see a picture of it, it's not that bad, but I don't know how I'd do seeing it in person. And the movers also found one of the skin coin purses in a different box upstairs. His house had to be haunted or cursed or some shit, right? He's got human skin relics and... God only knows what other weird stuff in there. I'm sure there's no way he didn't pick up a ghost or two along the way, for sure. And that's the tale of Antoine LeBlanc. A French nobleman, maybe, who couldn't quite adapt to 19th century Jersey and murdered his way into being turned into a lampshade. But I'm having fun with the old-timey stuff, and it turns out there was a huge network of grave robbers supplying the city of Baltimore and some other places with cadavers for medical research for like 70 years. That and this ended up being a much shorter story than I anticipated, so just consider the next few segments a little extra knowledge and stash that away for later. Basically, since the railroad came to town, grave robbers started digging up corpses all over town to supply medical schools with test subjects. They would go out to a grave with a shovel and dig toward the head to break open the coffin lid. Oh yeah, and they'd call themselves the Resurrectionists too, which is kind of badass. So they'd go out to the graveyard, they'd grab a shovel dig open to the coffin, and then smash open the lid, exposing the top part. They would tie a rope around the body inside, either around the neck or under the armpit, and then yank it out. Then they also had a giant barrel of whiskey nearby that the body was folded up and stored into, and then finally delivered to whoever needed it. And then that whiskey was served to people as stiff drinks. Think about that next time you order some rot gut. What? I really hope that's not where the term came from. That is disgusting. Ugh. Corpse whiskey. I I bet if I looked that up right now, I would find something. I'm not going to. Maybe if I do, I'll put it somewhere and get it out there. But I don't know. I guarantee you if I search for corpse whiskey, something's going to pop up. I'm going to do that later now. And these are just regular people out there grave robbing, too. They're like students and janitors. And sometimes even the doctors or their assistants would be out there digging up old corpses. 
And there's way more to the grave robbing trade, but it came up while I was reading, and I just... Hey, what about the Sayers house? Oh, yeah, thank you. I looked into that, too. And where the hell have you been, by the way? Oh, I never really left. I was just standing outside. Okay, moving on. After the murders, the Sayer house, the property was taken over by the Ledgerwood family, who mainly used it for civil planning and, like, governmental-type stuff. And they essentially turned it into, like, an, an administrative building for political functions and the like. However, at least one person did commit suicide there. In 1947, it was purchased by Edward Winchester and converted to an inn, but about ten years later in October of 1957, probably on Halloween, a fire broke out and injured 25 people. This place is for sure haunted. And at some point, the old house was converted yet again, but this time into a restaurant called Jimmy's Haunt. Jimmy! But that was eventually torn down to make room for a bank. Ugh, I guess it was in too bad of disrepair to save. But I wanted to see what kind of food they served. I couldn't find anything, probably because it's a bank now. And I... I thought I did, though. I didn't realize it was a different place until afterwards, but I ended up reading about another place a few miles up the road from it. And it was an Italian place, I think. And I came across a one-star review of a different place that I have to tell you about because this lady sucks. If you've ever worked in the restaurant industry, you know these people and you're the worst. They're the worst. She opens the review with, We arrived with a short time to eat, 55 minutes, and told this to the waitstaff when we arrived. We don't care. We don't give a shit about your schedule outside of this restaurant. Don't go out to eat if you don't have time to go out to eat. Then she says, the waiter waited until the appetizers were done to place our entree order, and by then it was too late to eat dinner in time. That is literally our job! I guarantee you, that server heard about this table being in a hurry, said, heard, to whoever told them that, then completely ignored it because, fuck your schedule, I'm in the weeds, then goes out back to smoke a cigarette before greeting them. I'd put money on that. She also complained that she asked for her onions on the side of her burger, but they came on it instead. Just fucking take them off. It's an onion. Wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. Hold on, hold on. Wait a minute. Yeah, hold on a second. Let's examine this a little more. She made a reservation at an Italian restaurant and orders a burger. You made a reservation for a burger? And then complained about it. God, this lady sucks. And then she ends it saying that this is the, quote, second time they've screwed up our reservation. No! You! You screwed up your reservation because you scheduled the wrong time. This lady has no idea how restaurants work. I bet she tried to ask for something really stupid, too, like, Um, excuse me, do you have, like, refried beans? Why would we have those? This is an Italian place. And one last thing, I, okay, I know, none of this has anything to do with anything, but the main story is over anyway, and this is just free extra stuff, and it's fun. The menu at a restaurant is not a grocery list of stuff to pick and choose from. Okay, so, if you don't know how restaurants work, when you arrive at the restaurant, you are seated and given a menu. That big book you're given tells you exactly what we can make for you, and it also lists off everything in that dish. Oh, you have all the stuff back there to make this dish, but you won't make it for me? Why not? It's not on the menu. We use those ingredients to make other stuff. Just because we have flour, sugar, eggs, and milk, doesn't mean we're going to make you pancakes. This is an Italian restaurant. We literally give you a book that tells you with words that we know you can read. You 
drove all the way here, that's what we'll cook for you. Maybe you can use those ingredients in that combination at home. We're servers, not servants. Anyway, that's all I have for you today. I came across this website full of a ton of 19th century murders and stories and deaths and all kinds of just wacky stuff. And I just, I love time period stuff. I love stuff from this time period specifically. I don't know why it's just so fascinating to me. This specific 19th century stories are always so similar yet far away, but also kind of familiar too in a weird way. They're really interesting to me in that regard. We do hope you enjoyed what we're trying to do here. If you did, go do all the free stuff, iTunes, Spotify, wherever you can. We definitely will appreciate any reviews or ratings you feel are appropriate. And next week's episode is going to be the first episode of October, so I'm going to put together a whole month's worth of the creepiest, weirdest stories I can find, and then we're going to talk about them and laugh about them, and just enjoy all the wacky stuff I can find. So we'll see you next week, everybody. Stay kind.